Good morning, church family. We're so glad that you've joined us to worship the Lord on this unique Sunday. And I suspect for many of you, this is your first time attending church online. And let me just say from the outset that our tech team, led by Brett Canode and Tim Dixon, they've been hard at work these past 48 hours to make this a great experience for you. However, there are certain factors that are outside of their control. And if for some unfortunate reason we should experience technical difficulties, I want you to know that we have a backup plan. Uh, yesterday, Pastor David was here in the afternoon and he recorded the message that he's planning to share with you. And should the stream be interrupted for any reason, our tech team will immediately post that service to our website so that you can still be blessed by the teaching of God's word. Now I realize it might feel a little different to attend church this way. To be honest, it feels a little different to me without all of you in the sanctuary. Uh, but we're grateful for these advances in modern technology that allow us to still have some measure of connection uh, while we can't be together physically. And as we think about connection, I want to invite you right now uh, to still uh, reach out and extend a greeting to those who will be worshiping with you. You'll see at the bottom of your page there's a comment section where right now you can post a welcome, a greeting, a good word to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if at any point in the service you have a question, I want to let you know that Pastor David Holcomb will be monitoring the comment section and you can reach out and he'll get you a quick answer. Now I realize that six days ago this wasn't the Sunday morning that any of us had planned. But here's where we know, where God is concerned, where God is involved, he can make all things beautiful. And so we begin this time of worship joyously, uh, with a sense of anticipation about how the name of Jesus might be lifted up, and how we as his people strengthened and edified in our faith. I want to let you know that our order of service will be slightly different from a typical Sunday morning. In a moment, Wes is going to lead us in a song of worship, and then Marie Harrison will share a brief kid-friendly devotional that I'm sure will be appreciated by all ages. Afterwards, Wes will lead us in another song of praise to the Lord, and then we'll hear the reading of God's Word and a sermon from Pastor David. And before the benediction, we'll spend some time in prayer, and we'll have a final song of praise. So as we begin this time of worship, Church, will you join me in a word of prayer? God, we gather now as your people to do what your church has done for the past 2,000 years. We want to set aside the start of the week to give you the praise that's due your name and to seek your face. And Lord, as we come, we pray that you would meet with us here and you would speak to us through your word, and by your spirit. We pray now that you would be pleased to receive the praise from our lips. And we ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Good morning and welcome. I'm going to tell you a story this morning, but I'm going to need you to use your imaginations. Now that it's almost spring, I want you to imagine that you wake up one morning and the sun is shining bright. It's not too hot and it's not too cold outside and your parents decide that your family is going to get out and enjoy this beautiful day that God has given us. So you're going to go on a family hike. And you are super excited. You just got a brand new backpack that you can't wait to use. So you ask your parents if you can pack your own lunch and carry your own backpack on the hike. And they're in agreement. So your family gets everything ready and off you go on your hike. And you hike for a long time. You hike for almost three hours before you finally find a good place to stop and eat lunch. And by this point, you are very hungry. So you sit down and you reach inside your backpack and you pull out your sandwich and your apple. 
boy, you cannot wait to eat. And your parents reach inside their backpack. Oh, no. They forgot to get the lunch out of the refrigerator. Your family doesn't have any food. All that you have is your sandwich and your apple. But you're pretty nice. So you decide that instead of keeping all this food just to yourself, you're going to share it with your family. Now everybody won't have much, but at least everybody will have a few bites of food. And that's better than nothing, right? Well, just then you hear a rustling on the trail. And you look, and here comes another family out hiking for the day. And they walk over to your family, and you're never going to believe this. They forgot their food too. They have nothing to eat. And they ask if your family has any food that you can share. Now your sandwich and your apple was enough food for you and maybe enough to share with your family. But how could so little food feed so many people? And it turns out this is the same problem that Jesus and his disciples had. John tells us in the Bible, in the book of John chapter 6, that one day Jesus was out teaching and a large crowd of people came to hear him. And as the day went on, more and more people came. Over 5,000 people had come to hear Jesus. And as the day wore on, the people started getting hungry. And the disciples went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you need to send these people home. They're hungry and we don't have enough food for them. But Jesus said, no, you should feed them. Well, the disciples were stumped. They didn't have enough food for 5,000 people. There was no Chick-fil-A close by to run grab dinner. What were they going to do? And a young boy came up to the disciples and said, I have my dinner that I'm willing to share. But that young boy had only brought enough for himself. There were only five loaves of bread and two fish. That wasn't enough to feed 5,000 people. But Jesus took the food and he prayed and he blessed it. He asked God to bless the food. And then the disciples started handing out the food. And guess what? There was enough food for every single person. And not just enough for everyone to have a bite or a crumb. The Bible tells us that everyone ate until they were stuffed. And then there were 12 baskets left over at the end. How did they end up with more food than what they started with. It must be a miracle. And it was. Jesus used that little boy and that day to teach all of us an important lesson. When you don't know what to do, when you're nervous or you're scared or you're unsure, you stop, you pray and ask God for help, and then you trust that God loves you so much that he will answer your prayer in his way and in his time.
So this week, when you get nervous, when you're unsure, when things seem a little scary, I want you to stop and pray. Ask God to help you and then trust that he will. Have a wonderful week. scripture this morning will come from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived, they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, 
Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. And thank you all for joining us online this morning. While technology will never replace the need for God's people to assemble together, it is a great help to us in the circumstances that we find ourselves right now. And I want to say once again, if we should experience a uh, technical problem with the streaming this morning, the message has already been recorded and will be available to you online immediately. Our president has called for today to be a national day of prayer for our nation, and we will have a special time of prayer after the message this morning, but I'd like to ask you to join me right now in another moment of prayer. Father, we come today again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I ask for those listening that you would bring encouragement this morning, that you would bring a renewal of hope and of faith and that in the midst of this disruption in our lives, our hearts would be torn, turned toward you. That this would be for each one of us a time to draw closer to you. And to see the opportunities you set before us to help meet the needs of others. Bring us encouragement through your word this morning, Lord, as we pray in your great name. Amen. We're continuing today our theme that we have called One Story. Now, if you've been with us at River Oaks over the past several weeks, you know that we began in January at the beginning of the Old Testament, and we're looking at the entirety of Scripture and viewing the Bible, Old and New Testaments, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New, as a unified whole revealing God's one story, His great plan of redemption for His people. We're continuing that series today by looking at the Old Testament book, of Ruth. The book of Ruth, a short little book of only four chapters, but it is a picture of God's beautiful grace, mercy, and love in very, very chaotic times. I think the book of Ruth especially speaks to us today in a 
politically divided, emotionally charged, virus-disrupted nation. And I say that because of the historical context out of which the book of Ruth arises. The very first verse in the book of Ruth, Ron read for us a moment ago, I'll read it again, says, in the days, begins, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, if you were with us last week, you know we focused on the book of Judges, and we saw that the book of Judges was, for the Israelites, a time of lawlessness, violence, and chaos. The book of Judges could be really summarized by the last verse in the book, which reads, in, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges reveals what life is like when everybody does what is right in their own eyes, and there is no God-ordained authority, order, or rule. And this is the historical setting out of which the book of Ruth comes to us. Not only was it in the time of the judges, but there was a famine in the land. And this wasn't just a brief temporary famine. It was a famine so severe that the Jew uh, Elimelech and his wife Naomi decided to leave their homeland, the land of Judah, and go to the land of Moab. So we could say this, the book of Ruth occurs for God's people, the Israelites, in the very worst of times. Now, to understand the book of Ruth, I think it's really important to understand a few key terms, and I'd, I'd like to share those with you uh, right at the beginning. The first is the word Moabite. The people of Moab were historically enemies of the Israelites. The book of Numbers gives three or four chapters to the account of a Moabite king named Balak who tried to hire uh, a Jewish prophet, Balaam, to curse the Israelites because he wanted to rule over them. He wanted to oppress them. And then more recently, the book of Judges records in Judges chapter 3 that the Moabite king Eglon oppressed Israel for 18 years. So the Moabites were serious enemies of the Israelites. Yet, the book of Ruth tells us, Elimelech and Naomi fled from their homeland of Judah and they went to the land of Moab. Now that was a desperate measure given that the Moabites were enemies. And remember, as we go through this little book, that Ruth herself was a Moabite. She was of the land of Moab. Second term it's key to understand in order to understand the book of Ruth is the word glean or gleaning. Biblical law called harvesters, those harvesting their crops, to avoid reaping the borders of their fields so that all the way to the borders of their fields so that the poor could glean the remaining crops. This was a way for poor people to, to work and go into the fields and gather the remnants, the remaining grapes or ears of corn that might not have been harvested or might have fallen to the ground. This was called gleaning. Biblical law is found in the book of Leviticus, reads this way. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. This was a, a guideline for Israel to show compassion upon the poor, care for them, gleaning. Now, in Ruth chapter 2, we'll find that uh, when Ruth 
returns to the homeland with Naomi, she goes out into the field of a man named Boaz to glean the crops. And that's how this story will unfold. A third word that is key to understand, to understand the book of Ruth, is the word redeemer. Now, the word redeemer here is not used in quite the same way as we'd normally use the word. A redeemer in the context of the book of Ruth was a relative who is under obligation to redeem an impoverished family member from slavery or to regain possession of family land that had been sold. There was a, a related Old Testament law that's sometimes called the law of leveret marriage. And it, it worked like this. If a Jewish man died and he was married but had no children, in certain cases his brother would be asked to marry his widow and thereby uh, have a child that would continue his brother's name in Israel. This law is found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And when you kind of put these two things together, this is the idea that Naomi in the book of Ruth has in the back of her mind, that this man Boaz will be for her and for Ruth a redeemer. In Ruth chapter 2, in verse 20, after Ruth has gone to the field of this man Boaz to glean. She's brought home food for her mother-in-law Naomi and for her. Naomi says to Ruth, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And what she means is that this man Boaz was a relative of her deceased husband Elimelech and they may be able to look for him for some support and for care. Now, when Naomi uses the word kindness, she uses a very important Hebrew term. It is the word hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word that is said by one uh, Bible commentator to be the key theological term in the book. Hesed is a Hebrew word that expresses God's love but it's much more full and broad than the word love that we typically use. It conveys the ideas of love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. When I was in seminary, I took a course on the book of Psalms, and the professor uh, translated the word hesed as loyal love, the love of God that is also seen at times in his people, and the word's found three times in the book of Ruth. Now, with these terms in mind, let's look at how the story of Ruth unfolds. As the book begins in chapter 1, we have four key characters. They are Elimelech and Naomi and their sons Malon and Chilion, the four of them. And as the book opens, they are going to sojourn in the land of Moab, the four of them. What happens there, however, is that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And her two sons, Malon and Chilion, marry two women of Moab. And so now the key characters in the book are um, uh, Naomi, Malon, Chilion, Orpah, and Ruth. Well, Malon and Chilion then die, and we're left with just Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Orpah and Ruth. And remember, Orpah and Ruth are Moabites. 
And they live in the land about 10 years. Then Naomi hears that the Lord has again provided food in the land of Judah, and she decides to go back home. And she urges her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to stay in the land of Moab. The reason she does that is that she knows their prospects for remarriage are far better uh, if they remain in Moab than if they return with her to the land of Judah. And so her daughter Orpah decides, I'll stay. Stay in the land of Moab. But Ruth makes this remarkable choice when she says to her mother-in-law, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, I'm going back with you. And then the story brings us to the point where these two are left, these two key individuals, Naomi and Ruth. They go back to the land of Judah. And there, Ruth will meet this man, Boaz. She starts out gleaning crops in his field. He notices her, and ultimately, she marries this man, Boaz, and Ruth and Boaz will have a baby boy and he will be named Obed. So at the end of the story, we have the four of them, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, and Obed. Now, I'd like to go back and look at the key decision in this story, the decision on which all of the, the outcome of this book hangs, and it's the decision made by Ruth to return with Naomi uh, back to the land of Judah. And as we look at this, I'd like us to reflect on what the book of Ruth is teaching us now, what it's teaching us today. The book of Ruth reveals, number one, the wisdom of choosing God and His ways over what may appear to be a more appealing path. Again, when Naomi is there left with only her two daughters-in-law, all three women are widows, she says to Ruth, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods because the Moabites worshipped idols. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Your God will be my God. Ruth is choosing the true and living God over what would have appeared to be a far more promising path with her life. She's going back with her widowed mother-in-law, uh, no prospect really of remarriage for her, turning down the more appealing path of going back with her sister-in-law to Moab. And there's a beautiful principle in Scripture here for us about the wisdom of choosing God in His ways over what may appear to be more appealing paths in life. I suspect that those of you who are in any type of business or sales perhaps. I was a sales rep for my first 12 years out of college. I suspect you're from time to time confronted with a choice. A choice of whether to choose God and His way over what may appear to be a more appealing path. You may face a decision in which you realize, hey, if I compromise a little bit, if I shade the truth a little bit, I will get this contract for sure. 
Some of us are doing our taxes right now. And I suspect for some, there's a temptation to say, you know, if I don't report this income, I can save a chunk of money on my taxes. I do have to sign something at the bottom of the tax return saying I did everything honestly. But, you know, if I just, you know, lie a little bit, I'll get away with it. I mentioned a moment ago that when I first got out of college, I was a sales rep. And um, I'll never forget the day when I had an opportunity to make a pretty good-sized sale to a hospital. And I had gone in to meet with a purchasing agent of this particular hospital, and they were already using our products, and I was just selling an additional a piece of equipment that would be an add-on to their system. But I knew this purchasing agent, like all purchasing agents was, was always going to be pressing me for a lower price. And when I quoted him the price on our product, it was, it was an older model product that he needed. And we since had a newer model. And I quoted him the price of the newer model, although I knew he was really getting the older model. I lied, basically. It made it look like he was getting a bigger, bigger discount than he was getting. And he uh, signed the purchase order, and I walked out of the hospital with the order in hand, feeling very, very guilty, and feeling deeply convicted by the Holy Spirit. I remember I went to a little restaurant at that point, sat down to eat lunch, opened my little Gideon's uh, New Testament where I was reading through the book of Psalms, and immediately felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me about what I had done. And I realized I would need to go back and see that purchasing agent and make this right. So with, uh, with fear and trembling and a lot of embarrassment, I went back to the hospital. And I um, walked in to see him. He was still in his office. And uh, I sat down across from him. And I think the first thing I said was, um, I'm a Christian. And I started to tell him. Uh, about the, the price I'd quoted him. And a little smile began to come across his face. And uh, he went on to tell me that, that while he worked full-time there at the hospital, part-time, he was a pastor, pastor at a little church. And we ended up having a wonderful conversation, still got the sale, and uh, I felt a whole lot better afterwards. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and I are always called to the way of truthfulness. It's not always the easiest path. But the book of Ruth teaches us that there is always wisdom in choosing God and his way over what may appear to be an easier path or a more appealing path or a more promising path. Because of the choice that Ruth made to choose the true and living God, because she returned with her mother-in-law, ultimately the man Boaz would say these words to her. And I think they're some of the most beautiful words in the book of Ruth. He would say to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognized that Ruth had not merely made a choice to go back with her mother-in-law. She had made a choice to take refuge under the wings, the shelter, the care of the true and living God. The book of Ruth reveals the wisdom of choosing God and his ways over what may appear to be a more appealing path. Secondly, 
The book of Ruth reveals the work of God's hesed, that is his loyal love for those who trust him even in the worst of times. And again, this is the time of judges when these things are taking place in the book of Ruth. This is a time when everyone was doing right, what, only what was right in his own eyes. There was no God-ordained rule, authority. It was a time of violence. It was a time of chaos, uncertainty, lawlessness. Not only that, both Naomi and Ruth had lost their husbands. They were two widows. These were difficult times for them. But Ruth had chosen the true and living God. And in his great hesed, his kindness, God was going to begin working all things together for her good. Reminds me of a verse. It's my wife's favorite verse. It's found in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And it reads this way. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and I do believe that promise is only for those who have embraced God's salvation. He has provided for us in and through Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet you find yourself in circumstances that you don't like and you don't understand, let me suggest that you focus on this verse, Romans 8:28, by focusing your efforts not so much on your circumstances, but on loving God. Because for those who love God, we have this incredible, incredible promise. Thirdly, the book of Ruth reveals God's inclusion of those who trust him in his one-story plan. So we take a look at this book of Ruth. We're also looking at how it fits into the entirety of Scripture, into God's great plan of redemption for his people and it may be a little hard to see that at first reading of the book of Ruth. The book ends in a really unusual way. It ends with a little section, an abbreviated section of a genealogy. The book of Ruth ends with these words. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Ashen. Ashen fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. What in the world does this have to do with the book of Ruth? God's purpose for Ruth's life was far greater than she could have possibly known when she chose the true and living God over the idols of Moab. Because ultimately, Ruth would indeed marry this man, Boaz. And she would become, if you're still looking at the genealogy on the screen there, from uh, the end of the book of Ruth, she would become the great-great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel, King David. Now, as you're looking at those words for a mo moment, notice something. In the genealogy, there's this man named Salmon. Salmon 
actually married a woman named Rahab, who was not a Jew. We saw her story in the book of Joshua. She was a, a prostitute, but because of her faith in the true and living God, she came and lived among the Israelites. She and her whole household were, were spared from death. She lived among the Jews, and she married a man named Salmon. It was Rahab and Salmon that had a little boy named Boaz. This is the Boaz who marries the Moabite, Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz have a little boy named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has several sons, the youngest one named David. This was King David, Israel's greatest king. So Ruth the Moabite becomes the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. Not only that, but she's the only Canaanite, as far as I know, after whom a book of the Bible is named. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, we find some really remarkable words. I'm going to read from Matthew, chapter 1, and verse 5. We see this same genealogy, but we see uh, the women's names included here in the Gospel of Matthew. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David the king. And then in verse 16, way down in the genealogy, we find these words. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That's right. Ruth, the Moabite who turned to worship the true and living God, is in the genealogy of not only King David, but David's greater descendant, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Ruth could never have known how her choice of the true and living God would, would make her a part of God's one-story plan. And I suspect in our lives, Often we, we make choices to choose God and His way over what may appear to be more appealing paths. We don't know how God's going to cause all things to work together for our good. But it's a beautiful example of His purpose at work in the life of this Moabite woman named Ruth. Now as we close, I'd like to raise just one question. And the question is this. How is Jesus revealed in the book of Ruth? Because as we look at, at, at Ruth and, and what it means to us in God's big picture, one story plan of the entirety of Scripture, I think it's somewhat evident that just as Boaz was the kinsman redeemer that God called in great love and mercy and compassion to care for Naomi and Ruth and to marry Ruth, he fulfilled the role of a kinsman redeemer. Jesus has become for those who have received his salvation, our kinsman redeemer. God is not like us. God is spirit. But God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became like us. The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and the children is a reference to to us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, Jesus, the Word, became flesh. 
He came to this earth as a baby boy. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Just as a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament had the responsibility of redeeming a blood relative out of slavery, buying them out of slavery, Jesus, the Son of God, took flesh upon himself that he might, by giving his life on the cross, redeem us from our slavery to sin and bring us into an eternal relationship with the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The greatest choice that you and I will ever face in this life is how to respond to the redeeming work that Jesus has done. And John the Apostle in the Gospel of John wrote to all who received him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Would you join me now as we pray? Father, I pray again for those listening. I pray for anyone who may not have yet received the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that he accomplished in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Would you be at work in that person today to draw that person by the Holy Spirit to turn from his or her sin and own way of life to the saving lordship and work of Jesus and to say, Lord, I believe. Lord, I receive. Would you be my Savior and my Lord? Father, encourage your people. Strengthen your people with might by your Holy Spirit. And we ask in your great name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to have a brief time of prayer now on what has been designated for our country a national day of prayer, but I first want to mention to you, this is the time in our service when typically our ushers would pass baskets for an offering, and we ask you to tear off of your bulletin what we call our ham hey, here card. It lets us know you're here. You can put prayer requests there. You can do that online, and we will still get the, uh, the info there. We'll get your prayer requests. You can also give online. And lastly, I'll mention that on Monday afternoons, uh, Pastor David Holcomb and I have been recording for a few weeks some little Q&A follow-ups to the Sunday messages, and we're going to be doing that again tomorrow, so you can join us again online tomorrow about 3 o'clock, or uh, watch online at your convenience as we uh, continue with a little Q&A after the, uh, the service. So Marie's going to start us now as we um, join with others in our nation today on this National Day of Prayer. We have the unique opportunity today to pray not only for our nation, but for our world. So now, right where you are, at home or here, Lord, if you will just bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray with us. Dear God, we come before you this morning in a time of uncertainty, in a time of high anxiety. God, we're unsure of what is happening in our nation and around the world, and we turn to you for comfort and support. 
Lord, we turn to you as the great creator and healer. And Lord, we pray right now that your presence would be among all those who currently are sick. God, we pray that your healing touch would heal their bodies, Lord. Give them the strength to fight off this virus. God, we pray especially for those in our community, for the elderly and those with compromised immune systems. God, we pray a special level of protection around them. Keep their bodies safe, Lord. Protect our nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Keep everyone in there safe and healthy. And right now, Lord, reach inside their bodies and strengthen them and prepare them to fight this virus. God, we pray also for those in our government who are making decisions about how to best keep us safe and healthy through this. God, we pray for your wisdom to be given to them. Lord, we pray that they would make decisions that would keep not only our country healthy, but our world. And God, we pray that they would make decisions with the wisdom given from you, the author and sustainer of our faith. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now as your people because we know that you are ruler of all. And Lord, with the spread of this virus, we know that our lives have been disrupted, that our plans have been altered, but we know that none of your kingdom plans have been thwarted this week. We know that your throne is still firmly established. We know that you are still in control and sovereign over all. And so we look to you now. We are a people in need of your protection and in need of your help. And you tell us in your word that you are near to those who call upon you. And so God, as your people, we call upon you right now. God, we would ask that you would work through the, the steps that we have taken to stop the spread of this virus. God, we would pray that as we cry out to you, that you would stretch out your mighty hand and you would bring an end to this pandemic. God, right now we think of those who are researching medicine that might treat this virus. And right now, whether... Uh, it's as a family in the living room or in the quietness of your own heart. I want to allow space just for you to offer up a prayer. For those who are researching, let's pray for wisdom and discernment for them as they search for a vaccine. God, we pray that you would give wisdom to these individuals and that there would be a breakthrough. Good morning, church. 
times like this, one of the things that a lot of people deal with with uncertainty is fear and worry and anxiety. And the place that we turn to is God's Word when we're fearful. He tells us over and over again in His Word, do not fear. And so this morning, would you join me as we pray uh, for God's strength and His peace for your hearts. Father, we thank you, Lord. Your Word says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous hand. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you is what it says in Psalms. So if you're fearful this morning or afraid or you have anxiety, put, our, put your trust in the only one that holds the keys to the universe. God's Word tells us, Lord, that God, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of of power and love and a sound mind. Lord, let us hold truth to that word. Lord, help us to walk in trust and faith. Lord, we know that fear can be seen as false evidence appearing real. So Lord, help us to put our trust in you. Let us have faith in you, that you are our healer, our redeemer. And so Lord, we ask Lord, and finally Lord, finally, Father, let us Follow the words of Philippians 4 that says, Do not be anxious for anything, but in prayer and supplication make your requests known to God. And the peace of God will settle our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we pray this morning that as we send our prayers to you, as we lift our hands before you, God, that you would give us your peace. And we would place our trust in you like never before. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take Him at His word Just to Just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace. To trust Him more I'm so glad I learned to trust Thee Precious Jesus, Savior, friend And I know that Thou art with me Wilt be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, 
for grace to trust in Thank you again for joining us this morning. Now we'll end the service with this benediction. And now in this time of uncertainty, may God give you the grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to trust him more and more. And in these times of uncertainty, may you draw near to the Lord. May you find refuge under the shelter of his wings. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. Thank you.